Hey, hey travelers. travelers. I'm Taylor. I'm Cassie. And, and this, this is, is Going, going Past, past the, veil. the Veil. Welcome to Going Past the Crime, a spinoff series from our original podcast, Going Past the Veil where we look into some of the most horrific crimes in history. Every episode is going to start with trigger warning because, well, we're going to be doing some serious investigating and going to share all of the details with you, from the minor clues to the most gory details. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into the life, mind, and short murder spree of the Vampire of Sacramento, a.k.a. Richard Chase. But first, a true crime fun fact from Taylor. And before I jump into the fun fact, which I guess maybe isn't considered a fun fact really for people, but before I get into our true crime fact of the day, um, I want you guys to remember that with these episodes, we're doing a blind recording. So again, um, if this is the first episode you're catching from us from, you know, any of our episodes, it's basically where one of us is going to research something, document it, and read it to the other one, and the other one has no clue what it's about or anything, so everything you hear from me in this episode is going to be, like, true uh, reactions, so I just wanted to remind you guys of that. And then I'd like to talk about our crime fact of the day, and it's going to be based off of this. Why do we like true crime? Like, why do people love it? You know, it's just... Why? Um, A study published in 2010 found that women were more drawn than men to true crime because really it contains tips on how to defend against an attacker or what to do if this were to happen to you. It just helps people feel prepared. So that's kind of why you might gravitate towards true crime, guys. That or we're all secretly psychopaths. Uh, well, we are all secretly psychopaths, so yes. Also, I got home today, guys, and I had a package in the mail, and Cassie, I love you. She got me two shirts, guys, and one of them is about The Office because, hello, it's me. I'm The Office Girl. And then the second shirt was, let me seduce you with the true crime fun facts or facts that I know. <laughs> I loved it, so thank you, Cassie. Is, doesn't it say, uh, let me seduce you with my knowledge of serial killers? Yes, sorry. I had true crime fact in my head right now. So yes, <laughs> and that is what it says. It's really cute. So I'm going to take a picture and post it. And Cassie, you're the best. So thank you so much for getting that for me. I appreciate you. That one about the knowledge of serial killers, I actually got one too. So we have matching shirts with that one. <gasps> okay, well then we got to post that on our uh, Instagram, guys. Okay, we're posting yes. that on the Instagram. Woo, 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 woo. So thank you. So let's get started. Now... Throughout this entire episode, I will be giving you sporadic trigger warnings because let me just tell you now, this is a rough case. All right. It gets rough. I'm letting you know now, if you don't think you can handle it, then I'll see you next week. And I think we need to, I mean, and I said that last week too, uh, with our, the first true crime case that we did for season two. And so I think it's just the next couple of weeks, guys, when we're doing the true crime and we're really focusing on it, it's just, we're going to give you a trigger warning and we'll try to keep doing it throughout the story. But really, like Cassie said earlier, it is what it is. This is going to be going into the graphic details of different things. And you're going to see our two different personalities come out too in this. I don't know. So just... Be, be warned. Be prepared. Be prepared. 
prepared. Richard Trenton Chase, a 27-year-old spree killer. And I'm using spree killer instead of serial killer because all of his kills happen so quickly. And he never had the chance to create a pattern, thank God. He was born in Northern California to pretty useless parents. As you will see as this continues, he never really had a chance in life. Born May 23rd, 1950 in Santa Clara County, California, there isn't a bunch that you can find out about his early childhood, but what is known is he was raised in a very strict home and was often beaten by his overbearing disciplinarian father. By the age of 10, he was already showing huge signs of the McDonald triad, which do you know what that is? I do not. So the McDonald triad is warning signs of children possibly being a sociopath. And they include excessive bedwetting, like past the normal age, cruelty okay. to animals, and setting fires. Okay, so I knew the, the cruelty to animals, um, and I knew fire, but I did not know about the bedwetting. Huh. Yeah. And his mom had actually had him seen by two different psychiatrists by the age of 12. It is honestly so sad to see the side-by-side photos of Chase because as a young man, he looked really happy, healthy, and had a lot of potential. Then only a short time later, he looks like a completely different person. That is so sad. Yeah, and I, I shared those pictures with you. You can see, like, he doesn't even look like the same person at all. No, no, he looks so... So I'm looking at a photo of him in high school, um, and then a photo of him after he was arrested. And yeah, he just, he looks so lively in high school. He looks happy and um, full of energy. But, um, okay, don't we all, though? I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my photos from high school compared to now, I probably look tired and exhausted. Like, if you saw a photo of me from high school and a photo of me now, you'd probably be like, yeah, she, she uh, might be one of those serial killers or something. But Rest assured, I've never killed anybody, so we're good there. Yeah, but with Chase, it's like his face is super thinned out. His eyes are sunken in. He's like, you can look in his eyes in the high school picture. And yeah, it's black and white, but there's more life there. Where in the other picture, you don't, there's no soul. There's nothing there. No, no. But what's interesting to me is if he was showing signs of being a psychopath as a child, how does he have such a lively photo? You know what I mean? I'll talk about it more later, but it, he does have paranoid schizophrenia. And I think once he hit the teenage years, and we'll talk about that a little more, is whenever it really hit him hard. And that's whenever it all started going downhill really bad. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm going to try to go in chronological order here. But all of the research I did and all of the information I got was very jumping around constantly. So I'm going to do my best. And a lot, I mean, a lot happened to Richard between 1962 when he was 12 years old and then 1977 when he was 27 and kills his first victim. I do feel like it's important to know what he had gone through and done before finally snapping. So bear with me as I go through some of the detail in his earlier years. I also want to put in a statement saying... We do not glorify serial killers or murderers or animal cruelty. We fully understand that this may be a triggering episode for some people, so please proceed with caution. No, no, no. We're just telling you that they're psycho. <laughs> right. Let's land in 1968. Richard is 18 years old. 
He had graduated high school, enrolled, and maintained C's in college. He was still using drugs and briefly saw a psychiatrist. But once the psychiatrist suggested that his erectile dysfunction was caused by anger and mental illness, he decided he no longer wanted the help. So, you know. Interesting. (laughs) All righty, sir. In February 1971, Richard's 21 years old, and he rented an apartment with some friends, but due to his heavy use of drugs, alcohol, and his strange behavior, his friends asked him to move out. And when I say strange behavior, he... So his roommates were a couple of girls that he knew in high school, and he would just randomly walk around naked. He was doing drugs all the time. He was apparently a small, like, small-time drug dealer, too, so he had that coming in and out. Oh, my gosh. He got so... Like, his schizophrenia got so out of hand that he boarded up his bedroom door and went, like, broke through the wall to get in and out in the back. But then when he decided that whatever was after him was in the bedroom, he then boarded himself up in his closet. Oh, and you said that he was schizophrenic, right? Yeah. Okay, that makes, wow, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So when he refused to move out, they decided to move out, and because he couldn't afford the apartment, he had to move back in with his parents. Shortly after moving back in with them, though, his parents separated, which probably was a huge triggering point for him because the instability had to have made it that much worse. And even though he was 21, he did split his time between either parent's house. Wow, so he was really um, connected to them, huh? Yeah. In April 1973, he was at a friend's party and had fondled a girl. You know how those stupid parties go. Everybody gets drunk. Everybody does stupid shit. And he was asked to leave. Well, he did. But he decided to come back. And they decided to call the police to remove him forcefully. And during the escort, a 22 caliber fell from his belt and he was arrested. And this is where things start to get kind of iffy with his parents. His father bailed him out. Now, just carrying a gun, his father bailed him out, not a big deal. But this is the beginning of his parents seeming to care more about their image than their child. What the hell? God, that bothers me so bad. They just uh, yeah. like, care about your child. Oh my gosh. Yeah, his mother is so much worse. Like when we get further down, there's so many, so many times that she did things where it's like, what are you doing? And I honestly, like, I kind of blame her for the way it turned out. Well, and I think that that's, oh my gosh, I might get like yelled at when I say this. But I think a lot of times when we look into true crime and look, you know, we go past the crime and we look at the family, we do see you know, that those motherly uh, figures may not always be the best and maybe like, and it, I mean like, okay, I'm not the best mom. I know I'm a good mom, but I'm not like the greatest Pinterest mom ever. But the moms that I'm talking about are the ones that just are so rude to the kids. They beat the children. They are just, yeah, they're God awful. Like, and you, you see that a lot with true crime. It's really, really upsetting. It, this gets so much like worse than to me than like physical abuse and you'll see what i'm talking about in may 1973 he moved to la to live with his grandmother but she couldn't care for him or tolerate his behavior and sent him packing right back to sacramento only a few months later 
During his time in LA, he was seeing doctors for so-called head injuries and stomach pain. And he continued seeing other doctors after he moved back. And I say so-called head injuries and pain because it was part of his schizophrenia. Like they would do these tests and do things to help him, but there's nothing wrong. Jeez. He, he was also seen by a neurologist who stated that Richard, quote, had a psychiatric disturbance of major proportions, end quote. Holy crap. Na- <laughs> 1973. They should have figured something needed to be worked on. Right, right. By well, the- and I'm sure back then mental health wasn't really a big, it was like a big taboo, right? Yeah, I guess. And I guess that's why that's such a huge, like, reason that everything happened the way it did. (sighs) But you'll see. (laughs) By the end of 1973, in December, he had went to the American River Hospital in Sacramento and told the staff that someone had stolen his pulmonary artery and his blood flow had stopped. Oh my gosh. He, he fully believed he was dying and somebody stole his artery. Um, okay. He was very quickly admitted to the psychiatric ward, which uh-huh. his mother soon took him out of. She decided he didn't need to be there. Like, I want to say he was there for like four days. <laughs> Your son goes to the <laughs> ER and he's like, somebody stole my artery and my blood flow has stopped. But you're like, nah, he's fine. He can come home. I don't understand. I don't understand. How do you- Oh, I don't either. Okay. You know what? Move on from it because I'm just going to sit here being pissed off. Sorry. Keep going. It's, it, it, you're going to continue being pissed off. So just be ready for it. Ugh. I want to <laughs> point out that this man is now 23 years old. He's been showing disturbing signs since he was 10 years old. There have been professionals that have said, Richard is not okay. He needs help. But it just seems like his parents are more focused on pretending that nothing is wrong and want to keep a pleasant image of Richard. It's ridiculous. Three years later, in April 1976, Richard's father had gone to visit him and found him extremely ill. Like, I need to call an ambulance right now, ill. Mm. It turns out, (sighs) Richard injected himself with rabbit's blood and was suffering from blood poisoning. Oh my god. He was doing all of this because he, going back to him having the erectile dysfunction, he believed that his body didn't make enough blood. He thought, my body doesn't have enough blood. So he's injecting himself with other blood thinking it's going to help well he was clearly admitted to the american river hospital psychiatric ward again did mommy come for his rescue not yet (laughs) a month later he escaped and it wasn't like it wasn't even like a well-planned out escape he literally walked out the front door The, (laughs) the staff at this place like he just walked out the front door Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, then. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, he was, he did was they get quickly, up? Did they bring him back? Yeah, he was quickly found and brought back. Okay, and that's a plus. He was then sent to an extended care mental hospital where he terrified the staff because he would catch birds through the bars in his windows, break their necks, drink their blood, and then toss them outside his door for the staff to clean up. What the heck? Yeah, he became known as Dracula at this hospital. 
Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Don't don't start gagging yet. You're gonna need to save that. No, Gazi. In September. You can always tell the differences between our things that we pick. Oh, God. Okay, let's yeah. do this. I can do it. I can do it. In September <laughs> 1976, he was released from the hospital. So he was there for a while. So April till September. So this time around, Mobby didn't bail him out. So he actually stayed, but it didn't do much for him. Oh. When he was released from the hospital, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which I mentioned before. And he moved into his own apartment with the help of his parents for bills and groceries, but he was in his own space. At some point during 1977, his the like conservatorship or like like the ownership over Richard expired. Right. Like his parents couldn't baby him anymore, basically. And he officially became responsible for himself. At 27, he was finally in charge of himself, which is a big yikes from me. Yeah. In June through August of 1977, a series of events led to a very odd occurrence with Richard, which is saying a lot, being as what we've gone through already. I, I was just about to say, what do you mean a very odd occurrence? Like, um, this whole story is odd, Cassie. <laughs> In June, his mom gave him over $1,400 and helped plan a trip to Washington, where he stayed for three weeks. He then went to Colorado and bought a 1966 Ford Ranchero for 800 bucks. In August 1977, the police at the Washoe County Sheriff's Department started to receive calls about a strange man walking around naked, covered in blood. And you'll find out. And this was out near Pyramid Lake in Nevada. Obviously, the police couldn't ignore these calls and went out to figure out what the heck was going on. And they found Richard's truck. And no Richard. So they were checking inside and found a bucket of blood and a liver. Soon Uh, after, (laughs) they discovered Richard, who must have been in one of his, like, psychotic breaks. Because when he was asked about the blood, he said it was his and that it was leaking from his skin everywhere. He had covered himself in this blood and convinced himself that it was coming from inside him. They did learn that, one, the blood and liver belonged to a cow. So... No humans yet. Okay. At least it's not yet. Oh, well, I guess this is a serial killer. Never mind. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) And Richard was not bleeding at all. Physically, he was fine. So in the end, no charges were filed and he was told to go on his merry way. As you will notice that 1977, he really started to escalate and a lot happened. So here we go. One day in 1977, Richard rang his mom's doorbell and greeted her by throwing a dead cat in her face. He then threw the cat on the ground, ripped open its stomach with his bare hands, and stuck his hands inside the cat, smeared its blood all over his face, all while screaming. And, you know, what did his mom do? You know? I mean, think- Call the cops? No, she uh, calmly turned around and closed the door. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Stop it. Are you freaking kidding me? And she didn't report the incident to anyone. She was probably like, I can't do this right now. And just closed the door and walked away. How do you not? Oh, my. Okay. Okay. 
What? Okay. But, All right. I don't. I don't have words. I don't. I have no words that are coming to my brain to say. All I can think about is like imagining the whole like him rubbing the blood on his face and screaming at her. Like if that is not a literal literal scream for help, I don't know what is. And she's just not listening. Yeah, she's just calmly turning around and closing the door and walking away. It's ridiculous. In October 1977, Richard started buying and stealing dogs from pet stores, the SPCA, neighbors, his girlfriend, wherever he could get his hands on them. I'm sorry. His girlfriend? Yeah, she had a puppy and he decided to- That's not even what I'm- Hold on. Stop with the- He has a (laughs) girlfriend? Yeah, he did have- relationships sporadically but they were so sporadic and so short that none of them were like notable okay okay i'm sorry keep going with the dogs now (laughs) yeah he he took her dog so he could drink it my Um, gosh what is up with them in blood well he is the vampire sacramento so oh yeah that's right sorry my bad (laughs) but You know, it gets worse because he would call and harass the families when he would steal their dogs. So it'd be like, ha ha, I stole your dog and it's dead. Like, what? And one of his neighbors would often see him taking these animals into his apartment, but also noticing that none of them ever came back out. If I was his neighbor, I would start getting concerned. Like a little, you know, geez. And if I was living during this time. I don't know if you heard, but that was Duke. Oh, hi, Duke. You're safe, though, because Richard's dead. Yeah, you're safe, Duke. He is? Oh, good. (laughs) I don't, like, if I was living during this time, Richard would not have made it to killing people. Because if this motherfucker took my dog, I would have hunted him down and killed him anyway. Like, leave my dog alone. Don't touch my dog. Preach. Um, (laughs) Moving on. Now... It is December 2nd, 1977. He buys a gun for $69.99 cash, but because of credentials needing to be verified, he couldn't pick it up until December 18th, which I get that it's 1977, but with his history, shouldn't the gun laws or like the verification have realized that he was unstable and should not have gotten a gun? He should never have had the option to have one. No. Yeah, but 1977, we're moving on. So I know we're 30 minutes in, but this is what y'all have been waiting for or dreading. Not sure which, but we are finally on to the murder spree. I am dreading. I am dreading. And I'm about to eat my dinner too, so. (laughs) But first, a word from our sponsor. Welcome back, my spooky friends. We have talked about Richard's past, gone over his mental history, talked about all of his paranoid schizophrenic breaks and him being an example of what not to do when your child shows all the signs of a serial killer. So take notes. On December 29th, 1977, Richard killed his first known victim, 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin, engineer and father of two. He did this by shooting from his car window and hitting Griffin in the chest, then quickly speeding away. So this first kill is not anything like the rest of his spree. I think this was more of him testing the waters. 
Richard was institutionalized again on January 11th, 1978 for schizophrenia and thinking that his skull had broken apart into pieces and was changing shapes. So he would like shave his head so he could supposedly watch his head change, which is horrifying. That was really freaky. Yeah. And, you know, he thought someone stole his pulmonary artery again. You know, typical Richard Chase shit. Starting after his time in the hospital, which was a super short time, he robs and ransacks several Sacramento homes. Obviously, he had issues, but this it gets it gets different. He would go from door to door and try the doorknobs. If it was locked, he'd move along. He wouldn't break it. He'd just walk away. But if it was unlocked, he took it as permission to enter the home. Sort of like a vampire. He needs permission to enter. Although that is not. (laughs) No. Stop. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. What? Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. So although that is not the only comparison that he ends up making to vampires. While robbing Holmes, January 23rd, he killed his second victim, Teresa Wallen, 22-year-old woman who sadly was 12 weeks pregnant. So here's an extra trigger warning, because I'm going to describe what he did. Using the same gun that he killed Griffin with, he entered the home through her unlocked front door. He shot her three times and then raped her corpse while stabbing her several times with a butcher knife that he found in her home. He then removed several organs, cut off her left nipple, and drank her blood. Before leaving the home, he got some dog shit from the front yard and stuffed it in her mouth. I, nope. Yep. Mm -mm. So definitely rough, and I think everyone's understanding the additional trigger warnings, but I did not like that. This is only his second victim. His spree has just begun. Two days after killing Wallen, he stole a four-month-old puppy and killed it, proceeding to drink its blood. And then the next day, the rest of Richard's spree terrorizes Sacramento. January 27th, 1978. Richard Trenton Chase, a.k.a. the Vampire of Sacramento, who I want to remind you is only 27 years old. I'm 27. If you ever wonder, go ahead, sorry. It just, it blows my mind to think that at my age, that this is happening with him. Like, that he's doing all of this. Mm, Yeah, keep going, sorry. On this day, he loses his ever-loving shit and goes on his gruesome killing spree. Entering the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Miroth. Sorry if I said that wrong, it's a weird last name. She was there with her neighbor, 52-year-old Dan Meredith six-year-old son, Jason, and 22-month-old nephew, Michael Ferreira. Each person in the home had been shot and brutalized, six-year-old Jason having been shot twice in the head. The playpen where Michael would normally be found, the police found a pillow with blood and a bullet hole. Evelyn was murdered, raped, sodomized, and cannibalized. Richard even tried to remove one of her eyes. When Richard killed Evelyn, he stabbed her in such a way that the blood pooled on her stomach, which he would then pour into a bucket and take home with him. The neighbor, Dan Meredith, was found in the bathroom with his skull split open in the tub and missing brain matter, which was later discovered that Richard had eaten and taken home. 
missing from the crime scene along with some of, you know, Evelyn's organs was baby Michael. The police had hope, very little, but hope that Michael was still alive. At the crime scene, Richard had left plenty of handprints and shoe prints. He was messy and unorganized. Sadly, baby Michael did not survive. He didn't even leave the home alive. Richard told the police that he took the baby's corpse home with him. (sighs) Okay, I'm going to go ahead and throw in an extra trigger warning that I wasn't expecting because my brain's doing spins right now. He took the baby's corpse home with him where he sucked the blood out of the body, removed several organs, and made a smoothie with them. So a baby organ smoothie. I know you're expecting a reaction, but I have nothing. (laughs) I have no reaction. That is horrible. Yeah. I can't even. It, whew. He eventually disposed of the corpse behind a nearby church. I'm going to give you a profile of what they released when they were looking for Richard. White male, age 25 to 27 years. A thin, undernourished appearance. Residents will be extremely, like, unkept, and evidence of the crime scene will be found at the residence. History of mental illness and will have been involved in the use of drugs will be a loner who does not associate with either males or females and will probably spend a great deal of time in his own home where he lives alone. Unemployed, possibly receives some form of disability money. If residing with anyone, it would be his parents. However, this is unlikely. No prior military record, high school or college dropout, probably suffering from one or more forms of paranoid psychosis. Agent Wrestler classified the killer as a disorganized offender i.e. no planning was involved in this murder, likely seriously mentally ill and cannot distinguish right from wrong. This is in contrast to organized offenders who carefully plan their crimes, often stalk victims for months beforehand, are reasonably high intelligence, and definitely know right from wrong. I mean, talk about 100% spot on. I have a checklist. White male, 27 years old, lives alone. History of mental illness, uses drugs, a loner, receives disability money, no co- no military record, college dropout, suffering from paranoid psychosis, and disorganized. Oh, and I missed the uh, thin and undernourished appearance. Right. Yeah. Like You know what? See, that's something I wanted to do when I was younger. I really wanted to be in the FBI. They're too smart. I can't keep up. <laughs> that's why I'm not in it. So, I mean, just Wow. Let's all take a deep breath. Even though Richard Chase had earned the name Vampire Sacramento, this was the last of his spree. On January 28th, 1978, a citywide search was organized to try and find baby Michael. The police received a tip from a young woman in her late 20s who gave them a lead that they had been waiting for. She told them that on the 23rd around noon, she had seen a man she went to high school with and graduated in 1968 at the mall. She was shocked by his appearance. He was super thin and pale, huge circle under his eyes. His clothes were too big, hanging loose on his body. He wore a sweatshirt that was covered in what looked like bloodstains, and his name was Richard Chase. Richard's apartment was less than a block away from the shopping mall. The police went to his apartment and knocked. When he realized what was going on, he he tried to make a run for it, but was tackled and taken into police custody. Detectives, including wrestlers, searched Richard's home, and what they found fits right into the profile that they released. 
the walls, floors, ceiling, fridge, and lots of eating and drinking utensils were covered in blood. On the kitchen counter, they found a blender caked in coagulated blood and rotting organs. In the fridge, detective found several animal parts wrapped in foil. Dan's brain in a Tupperware container and pieces of Wallen's organs wrapped in saran wrap. On another counter in the kitchen, they found several pet collars. On the kitchen table were diagrams showing various aspects of human biology. I just, what? I, I like, hold on. I've been trying to figure out like what to say in regards to this case i have nothing like i've had to remove my headphones a couple times i'm not even kidding because i'm like i'm so freaked out oh my gosh it's it's a rough case during the interrogation he was interviewed by two psychiatrists that said he displayed no expression of remorse or guilt he described the murders in a matter of fact kind of way like he didn't feel bad he was like well this is what happened Soon after Richard's arrest, the body of baby Michael was found in a cardboard box in a vacant lot between a church and supermarket. It wasn't until almost a year later, in 1979, that the trial finally began. Richard pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, which makes sense to me, but the psychiatrist said that he was sane at the time of the murders. Four months later, on May 8th, 1979, Richard was found guilty of six accounts of murder and sentenced to death. The trial had lasted four months, and it took the jury five hours to deliberate. Richard was sent to San Quentin State Prison, and he soon began having issues with medications and was sent to Vacaville State Hospital, but they turned around and sent him back to San Quentin. During his stay at San Quentin State Prison, the other inmates, including several gang members, avoided Richard after hearing about the brutality of his crimes. They often tried convincing Richard to kill himself because they were too scared to get close enough to kill him themselves. During one of the interviews that Ressler did with Richard, he told Ressler about his fears of Nazis and the UFOs. Richard claimed that although he had killed people, it was not his fault. He had to kill to keep himself alive. He asked Ressler to give him access to a radar gun so he could get the Nazi UFOs and make them stand trial for the murders. In the same interview, Richard handed Ressler a large amount of mac and cheese that he had been hoarding in his pockets because he thought the guards were in league with the Nazis and trying to kill him. In the end, on December 26, 1980, Richard Chase, the vampire of Sacramento, committed suicide by overdosing on his antidepressants that he had been saving up for weeks. And that's it. So it was like a little Christmas gift to himself, I guess. Like, I, I know I say that. I know that can be very, very considerate or, or, oh, goodness, I don't even know the word I'm thinking of. But I, and I'm sorry. But, oh, my gosh, this poor guy. Like, I, okay, <clears throat> I say poor guy. But what I mean is this. The kid had some horrible, horrible problems. And he needed to be hospitalized and his mother should have been there for him and i'm really pissed off that she wasn't but oh my god thank god he was put in prison for what he did oh. yeah and i missed a couple spots that i remember reading about that one of his stays in the hospital she besides the one i had already talked about there was two separate stays where she went and got him early during one of the times that he was living with her she decided he didn't need to be on his medication and took him off so stop it yeah 
at that point when he was on the medication could have stopped all of this, but she decided he didn't need it. So was she, did she go to prison? Cause I feel like she should have been in prison too. Not that I know of. I didn't find much more information about her or his father. Wow. Like what the hell? That's why I said in the very beginning, like he never really had a chance Every time that he possibly could have gotten the help and done something to prevent all of this insanity, his mom fucked it up. I just, I, and I just don't get it as a parent. Like if, if my children were showing any type of signs that they need anything, I mean, for God's sake, I reached out when Tucker was three and wasn't speaking very well and was like let's get him some speech therapy and i mean he was fine he uh, he needed like a little bit of help but not but i mean like i'm i'm that kind of person that i'm like let me do whatever i can to help my children i just don't understand i don't get it either and like you said earlier we see this a lot in true crime where the parental figures and more often than not the mothers totally screwed up like they they weren't what they needed to be they weren't there for their kids they didn't care about their health or happiness or anything Mm -hmm. and you have to think like if they had cared how many people would still be alive how different would it be you know like baby michael michael could have been you know such a it's just it's so anybody who loses their life to crime like this or crime in general it's just so sad to see that life gone and i mean because you that person could have grown up and just been, you know, the person to cure cancer or, you know, something, something like that. And I, I it just, it really hurts me to know that that's, that life is cut short for no reason. And, and then looking at the person who does it, because that's something I always, whenever I look at any type of crime, I'm like, well, how did this person grow up? What did this person do? Like what, what made this person into this monster? Yeah. Unfortunately, he was born with what eventually made him go insane but there were so many times where he was getting the help and then it was like ripped out from under him so he didn't actually get the help that he needed it's ridiculous wholeheartedly ridiculous i don't know that's that's pretty much all i have to say about this episode like i just it's hard to end these episodes because it's like well how do we uh wrap this up (laughs) yeah thanks guys hope you had a good time i mean you can't you can't you can't end this on a good note. You cannot end this on anything. Because after you hear that, it's really dark. Oh, gosh. And it, you know what? It, I think- it also blows my mind that there were gang members in prison that were too scared to approach him and kill, them, right. kill him themselves. They're like, hey, you should just off yourself, bud. Yeah, you said that earlier. And I'm sitting there I'm like, what? Like, what in the world? And I don't know. That, that's got to say something. I don't know. You know what, guys? My next episode, you're going to be happy with because it's going to end on a good note. <laughs> like, <laughs> I found one. I found one and I was so excited. I'm like, this is it. This is the one I'm going to do next. So. All right. Well, I guess let's go ahead and wrap it up. Oh, thank you guys so much for joining us on this crazy ride. You can find us on Instagram at going past the veil. Twitter at past veil. Patreon at patreon.com slash going past the veil with Taylor and Cassie, where you can support us on Patreon starting as low as $3 a month with early access to episodes and bonus episodes. And guys, I don't know if you know, but I'm a Patreon member. 
I pay three dollars a month, mm-hmm. and I think it's cool. And I and I I'm on the episodes, so <laughs> you can also check out our website at Going Past the Veil with Taylor and Cassie where you can get a quick link to our Patreon and Teespring merch page. We hope to see you next time, and we hope you keep listening. And always travel safe.